0: Welcome back for part three of our special three-part Darwin Day edition of Scientific American Science Talk. I'm Steve Mersky. We'll continue with another presentation from the Darwin event last week, sponsored by the New York Society for Ethical Culture. The Reverend Thomas Goodyew is executive director of the Long Island Council of Churches, and he's the author of the book Curious Bones, Mary Anning, and the Birth of Paleontology. Uh, I'm going to be talking mostly about the religious influences on Darwin. We've heard a little about Darwin's influence on religion. And I want to take us back to the precursors of Darwin's theory and how religion was a part of the influence on them. I think I got involved in all of this because of um, being puzzled by some things. More than 12,000 clergy, in fact, have signed a joint declaration that says... The timeless truths of the Bible and discoveries of modern science may comfortably coexist. And yet, for many Americans, about half of the population, according to the Gallup polls, they still are opposed to the theory of evolution and oppose it being taught in public schools. That's always been a mystery to me, since it's, for my whole life, practically been clear to me. It was, without doubt, one of the most important scientific theories ever presented. Something which it makes it, it's almost impossible to understand the biological sciences, um, or as we've just heard, half of the other sciences these days, without understanding the theory of evolution. And yet people are still against it. I think that reason, there are many reasons for that. One has to be that, um, and without doubt this is the most important reason, is that shortly after Darwin presented his theory, it was bastardized into something called social Darwinism that had almost nothing to do with Darwin's scientific theory, was, if anything, more of a a theological or a religious belief, that if you survived, you were the fittest. It led to a whole series of incredibly racist theories being developed, the whole eugenics motion movement in America that said people should be sterilized if they were poor to keep them from reproducing, Um, Jim Crow laws across the land were supported by social Darwinism, and Christians who were progressive reacted against social Darwinism. People sometimes talk today as if the battle was between Darwin and the fundamentalists. It really wasn't for generations. The battle was between progressive Christians and the social Darwinists. And uh, as is so often the case, movements move away from their founders, and people forget that in this case, Charles Darwin would have been horrified by things that people were saying in the name of social Darwinism, that his theory was inspired more by an opposition to slavery, perhaps, than anything else. But I think, too, there's opposition to the teaching of evolution still today, because Far too many secular people, far too many agnostics and atheists, assume that most Christians are going to oppose them on the teaching of evolution. For Catholicism and for most mainline Protestants, this really isn't a big issue. And far too many people who believe in the theory of evolution dismiss the possibility that people of faith could believe in theistic evolution and still be good scientists. One other reason I think is that too often, not so much scientists as people like me, science buffs, can easily cross over from the methodological agnosticism that is necessary to do science. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to presume that you're going to try to come up with an explanation that is natural in order for science to advance. They cross the line from that into making a leap to a belief that is really theological and not scientific, which is to say because we are only measuring and theorizing about phenomena that we can see and measure and detect, that's all there is, and that there is no other reality beyond the one that we can measure. It's also the case, too, that I think that way too few Christians know that the genetic research pioneer Gregor Mendel was a monk, or that Charles Darwin was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. How many of you knew that? I hope you all knew that. At least a few more hands, but it's only half of you. Too few secularists, I think, know that too, as well as too few people of faith. And way too few people know about the profound contributions that were made very paradoxically to the advancement of science, by people who were creationists. Now, I don't mean in this wacky notion that we hear bandied about of intelligent design, too. As my doctor says, who is a profound person of faith, the human spine is one of the strongest arguments against intelligent design. (laughs) And she's right. (laughs) So, but there is a much more subtle, more paradoxical, more wonderful way in which people's religious beliefs were an important part of the groundwork that was done before Origin of Species was produced. And I want to talk about that a little today. Um, For example, Mary Annie, she'll be really the focus of this. She touched off the world's first dinosaur craze two decades before the word dinosaur even had been coined. But until recently, her work has been almost completely ignored by historians of science, which is the reason, and it's not your fault, that so few of you have heard of her, even though she was arguably the first person on the planet to take up fossil hunting as a full-time career an occupation. She was born in 1799 in Lyme Regis on the south coast of England, a little town where Jane Austen set much of the action in her novel Persuasion, and the place where John Fowles set his novel and screenplay for the French lieutenant's woman. She was raised in the independent chapel in Lyme, whose members were beginning to call themselves Congregationalists. The congregation was a strain of dissenters, or nonconformists, who did not conform to the teaching of the established church, the Church of England which was itself not exactly Protestant and not exactly Catholic. She was baptized by an officiating visiting pastor because the chapel had just thrown out their pastor when they discovered that he was a closet Arian, someone who denied the divinity of Christ, somewhat like a modern Unitarian. Horrors, horrors, he was thrown out. The Annings and her family and their friends and worshipers, in other words, were evangelical Christians though that didn't mean the same thing back then as some people mean today when they call themselves that. The independent chapel was both the center of social life for her and her family, and it was also the only shot she got in an education. Formal education was non-existent for most people in the whole county of Dorset during these years. But sometime around her eighth birthday, she began attending a Sunday school that the dissenters set up at the chapel which was not really for religious education at all. It was to teach working-class kids like her reading and writing, the only schooling she ever got in her whole life. They did this because of their religious belief, because Protestants believed firmly that people should be able to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. That was clearly what impelled them to form a school for working-class kids. That's how Mary learned to read and write. And around this time, her older brother Joseph passed on a book to her, which uh, their parents had given him a few years earlier. It's a really bizarre gift to give to an eight-year-old. It was the the bound volume of the theological magazine and review that the dissenters published. But in reading this, you can kind of get a clue as to what it was that she read as a child, what shaped her view of the world, and what it was that she heard. Because her pastor was a frequent contributor, and she heard him preach at least three times most weeks. Sometimes three times just on Sundays. Well, she would have read there some stuff that now seems quite strange to us, like... um, A statement that God had created the universe in six literal days, citing, quote, the authentic account of the creation given to us by the most ancient historian there is, Moses. Mary also read, however, a model curriculum for a dissenter school that said dissenters should study geology. It was important for them to know that. And we can be sure that she read with a great deal of interest a long obituary of another girl in Lyme Regis, Martha Locke, who died when she was 16. What's what's amazing to me about this is that 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 obituary, which goes on for two and a half pages, is much, much longer than the obituary of a universally respected clergyman who died about the same time. The book and the dissenters, in other words, took the spiritual journey of a teenage girl at least as seriously as they did the religious beliefs and struggles of a clergyman. The dissenters and their faith ended up raising a child like Mary who fully believed that she had some important work to do in her life. And that made all the difference. She also read there all sorts of calls that Christians should oppose social injustice, that they should try to stop capital punishment, which at the time extended to 200 offenses in England. And at the time she grew up, hangings right outside the doorstep of her home were a frequent public form of entertainment. The book, I think, gave her, as her church did, courage to do what was not expected in her society of young girls especially working-class, little-educated ones. Mary Annie needed faith and courage to follow her father into the difficult and dangerous work that he did as a hobby, which was scrambling up crumbling, chalky cliffs to dig fossils out of the crumbling cliff sides. All the more courage she needed when he died when she was just 10 years old, after he fell off of a cliff and later died. Poor, with little formal education, Mary found a unique calling. She became the world's first professional fossil hunter. And she got into this vocation at exactly the time that the new science of geology needed the kind of contributions that she could make. A local historian, Joe Draper, has said, She was the right person, in the right place, at the right time, but she was the wrong sex. Because she was a woman, the scientists who depended upon her discoveries almost never for decades gave her any credit in public for having made them. They would profusely thank the rich guy who bought the fossil specimen and never mention her. They would publish long descriptions in the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, never even sent her a copy of what they had published about her work. But during this time, Anne's faith helped her to do difficult, dangerous work even when she was being dissed by the scientists, and even when frequent economic downturns made it hard to sell some of her most spectacular finds. There's a paradox here, because her faith let her do this dangerous work, and it was dangerous work. She survived several very close calls with death. She did this work because of her faith, and the things that she found upset the faith of millions of people across the nation and around the world. When she found Ichthyosaurus and Plesiosaurus, for example, two of the first marine reptiles to be described, most people did not believe in extinction. They did not believe that the species that had existed once before were really particularly different from what was around today. Many scholars thought that they still lived somewhere. About the time that she went fossil hunting with her father for the first time, President Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark on their expedition. Do you know what he hoped they would find there? Mastodons roaming in the West. Along with, and I'm not making this up, the Lost Tribes of Israel and Welsh Indians as she found prehistoric creatures, though, increasingly it became clear that they were completely unlike anything that was around today. And it got people wondering, how could one form of life have evolved into another, decades before Darwin really did? In the 1810s and 1820s, again, long before Origin of Species, Mary Anning discovered the dolphin-shaped ichthyosaurus, the first nearly complete skeleton of a prehistoric marine reptile to be accurately described by scientists, before the word scientist even had been coined. She found plesiosaurus, which had a long neck and a short tail, four paddles, and a body shaped sort of like a turtle. It was a fossil so strange that the the most eminent scholar of the time that examined it, Cuvier, thought that it was a fraud at first, before he saw it with his own eyes. She discovered Dimorphodon, the first flying reptile to be found in the UK. She found bellumnites that squirted ink around themselves to evade predators. She found Coprolites, or dung stones, which revealed what prehistoric creatures ate. She found Squaloraha, a strange fish that had wings, sort of like a manta ray or a stingray. Who work also led to friendships with budding geologists, including the Reverend William Buckland, who discovered Megalosaurus, the first British dinosaur to be described. The Reverend William Daniel Coneybear, another Anglican priest who studied adaptation to environment decades before Darwin. The Reverend John Gleed, who was her pastor in the 1820s and who also was a fossil seller. Charles Lyell, the greatest British geologist of the 19th century and Louis Agassiz, one of the greatest American scientists later of the 19th century. She also formed strong friendships with female geologists that I'm certain you've never heard of before, like Mary Buckland and Mary Lyle and Charlotte Murchison, who all did very significant scientific work and whose husbands always got the credit for what they did. By the late 1820s, belief was waning among educated Christians that the Earth was young and had been created in six days. Mary's discovery of the tiny little coprolites, those dung stones, really put the nail in the coffin of belief that that this stuff was that the Earth was young, and and really that everything that had existed once still existed today. You know, the first reaction to to something that doesn't fit your preconceived notions is usually simple denial. And and so what a lot of people did at first was they said, oh, it may, it may only look like we have, but you still hear this from some of these young earth creationists, you know, it, it looks like we have something buried in the cliffside there that looks like it's millions of years old, but really God made that, you know, 4,000 years ago and buried it there to test our faith, Okay. People actually said that to each other in the 1820s and 30s, and a lot of people actually bought the argument. When it became clear what those little coprolites were, you had to wonder what kind of a comedian the Almighty would be to create something that looked exactly like a fossilized turd. The Reverend William Buckland, far from being threatened by the beliefs, was so excited by Mary's discovery that he had a tabletop made for him with polished inlaid coprolites, little pieces of fossilized feces on top of his table. It's Darwin's legacy that we debate today how life evolved, not whether it evolved. But in the time that Anning was working, this was a stunning new idea that life evolved. You know, and so today we question did life, evolve, did life evolve steadily and slowly, which was sort of what Darwin seems to have thought, or in sort of punctuated equilibrium stages, as Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould suggested? Did evolution happen with or without a nudge from God? We may debate today but we don't debate at all whether or not it occurred at all. It's obvious to everyone, including most of the young Earth's creationists, that something somewhere changed a long time. William Daniel Conyberg, who described uh, Mariannan's discover, discover of Plesiosaurus, the one that looked like a, a snake pulled through a turtle, insisted that this fossil offered striking proof of the infinite riches of creative design. Now, that's not to say he believed in what passes for intelligent design today. But he did believe that the world had been created by his creator and had been created in a way that he could try to make sense out of. He believed that this divine designer was creating a world that was discernible and that, that advanced scientists, that pushed natural theology and natural science forward rather than holding it back. As the physicist Paul Davies has written very recently, to be a scientist, you had to have faith that the universe is governed by dependable, immutable, absolute, universal, mathematical laws of an unspecified origin. He adds, too, that scientists still have to believe that to do their work today. They can't actually prove the axioms of scientific research. But you have to believe that the world is orderly and makes sense if you're going to try to make sense out of it. Christianity taught that the universe was orderly and purposeful, not chaotic. Belief that it was possible to discover the principles underlying an orderly world made it easier for people to see what the patterns of evolution were. Conibert believed that his creator had guided evolution through a great chain of being that stretched back from the times of prehistoric reptiles to our time. Because he expected to find something that fit each of these creatures into their ecological niche, he found the evidence of adaptation to environment that became a keystone of Darwin's theory. You see the paradox there? Because he's looking for a creative intelligence to have made it possible for things to fit into the world in some way. He found the adaptation to the environment in the fin of a plesiosaur, for example, which Darwin wrote about in his notebook in 1838 when he was first trying to develop the notions of adaptation to environment. And paradoxically, in much the same way, as Annie relied upon her faith to do this dangerous work, the discoveries she found helped to fuel a massive religious realignment across the nation in the 1830s. And again, Darwin was just beginning to put the pieces of his theory together. Mary's friend Charles Lyell drifted from the Church of England to Unitarianism. Horrors, horrors. Mary and her brother Joseph shifted from the independent chapel to the Church of England, which they found more accommodating to viewpoints, including those of a scientific nature. The Reverend Charles Darwin became a skeptic and a doubter during this time, too. It's easy in our time to think that what was going on back then was a war between science and religion. You will still hear it described that way today. But what was happening then, and I think what is still happening now, is something really quite different. It is a contest of different kinds of religion with one another. And it is a contest, back then it was, of different ways of doing science. What finally prevailed as the scientific methodology was just one way of doing science back then. For Mary Anning, for William Daniel Conibearer, for William Buckland, and for the Reverend Charles Darwin in the 1830s. This was an internal debate, too. It was a struggle within their own minds and souls between different religious notions and different scientific notions. People saw a contradiction between geology and the book of Genesis, Coney insisted, only because they misunderstood the Bible. They might think that the earth was created a few thousand years ago, but the Bible never claims this. They were not interpreting the Bible literally, he insisted, and this was back in the 1830s. They were misreading into the Bible stuff that was never there, which is the whole gripe I still have with my fundamentalist colleagues, and also I'd have to say with a lot of secularists who seem to assume that biblical interpretation that claims to be literal is literal, in the same way that they seem to Assume if a politician claims to be a Christian that they actually are. Young earth creationists, in other words, as Coney Bear insisted, are not more pious, and they are not more orthodox, than other people of faith. They are not more pious than people who think that the world is billions of years old. Since the age of the earth is not a religious issue, it is a scientific question, not a religious issue at all. The Bible doesn't tell us which day the world was created on. Nonetheless, Mary Anning's discoveries were deeply upsetting to many people because they got at some of the sort of psychological presuppositions of their lives. The antiquity of the earth was disturbing to many people, Stephen Jay Gould pointed out, because it overturned assumptions that were cozy about how humans had always been the crown of creation, the ruling bodies, when, as he has argued, in fact, in most ages, we would have to say it was really the age of bacteria. There were a lot more bacteria than there were of us. Extinction was equally threatening since Christians misread the Bible. They misread Genesis as saying that every species had to have been created in the past at some point, which the Bible never says, but they believed that. And so that belief was shattered when we got evidence that this wasn't true anymore. By the 1830s, there was clear evidence that the earth was not young and that it had been inhabited by a now-vanished creatures stranger than anything we'd ever seen before. Yet as late as 1840... The Reverend George Young, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, who had himself had discovered the ichthyosaur, Leptuctor Igeus Acuostrosis himself, he was still claiming in 1840, mind you, that the earth was young, that Noah's flood had shaped the surface of the earth, and that we were still going to find ichthyosaurs when we'd explored the whole earth. They'd still be swimming around somewhere in a region we had not yet discovered makes it a little easier to understand why Darwin was so afraid of publishing his theory. When you imagine that somebody who found a great fossil still believed he was going to find the living ichthyosaur. It's important to remember, too, how much of the world was unknown in the 1830s. In this time, there were reports of some big hairy ape that lived somewhere up in the highlands of Africa, but no one had ever described the gorilla didn't come until 1847, the year that Mary Anning died. Louis Agassiz, whom Mary Anning helped in her her pioneering research that he did on prehistoric fish, remained himself a truly scientific creationist. He thought there was a creator. He thought that God had worked through the stages of creation and evolution. He was really skeptical of Darwin's theory, But he was skeptical for good, solid, scientific reasons. And I think this gets at something, too, that is part of the reason that it's hard to teach evolution in public schools today. It's so easy to forget that people who often bring an objection to a theory can do it in a way that ultimately strengthens the theory, which is precisely what happened in the early years of Darwinian theory. As Stephen Jay Gould has pointed out, the criticisms that augusties made were valid scientific objections to a theory that was still in the process of being formed. During the last decade of her life, many of Mary Anning's contemporaries were experiencing profound faith crises. But a diary that she kept uh, reminds us of how deeply faithful she remained her whole life. It was a faith that sustained her in doing work that shattered the beliefs of many other people. And if we forget the way in which faith contributed to the growth of science, it's no wonder the people of faith will reject science. Thank you. This concludes our three-part Darwin Day series. For much more, check out the Darwin In-Depth Report at our website, www.siam.com. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.